Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Continual criticism of the pro-life movement is that adherents only care about children before they are born. But is that true? For decades, my guest today has been immersed in the pregnancy help mission that assists women with unexpected pregnancies. Peggy Hartshorn, PhD, and her husband first volunteered to house pregnant girls in their home in 1975. She is now the chair of Heartbeat International an international nonprofit organization with a worldwide network of more than 3,000 pro-life pregnancy help centers that provide comprehensive assistance to women throughout their pregnancies and beyond. The goal of Heartbeat International is to offer compassionate support so that no woman ever feels that abortion is her only option. Dr. Hartshorn has traveled to 52 countries in support of pregnancy help organizations in Eastern and Western Europe, Australia, Latin America, Africa, and Asia. She is the recipient of many pro-life awards, including the President's Volunteer Service Award under President George H.W. Bush, the J.C. Penney Golden Rule Award, the Defender of Life Award from Students for Life, and the Cardinal John O'Connor Award from the Goddess International. Dr. Hartshorn co-founded Heartbeat International's Option Line in 2002. It is the only 24-7 bilingual internet-based pro-life call center in the world. Option Line handles about a quarter of a million calls each year, connecting callers to their community-based pregnancy help center. Dr. Hartshorn is also the co-author of The Power of Pregnancy Help, The First 50 Years. Peggy, welcome to Humanize. Thank you so much, Wesley. I'm really looking forward to having a great discussion with you. (laughs) Why did you become so immersed in pro-life work? Well, uh, it had to be God's plan. It certainly wasn't mine. (laughs) Uh, At the time, I was getting my PhD in English literature and uh, thinking that God wanted to be, Mom wanted me to be. I felt that, that this was what I had always wanted to do. Uh, an English teacher. I loved teaching and I loved teaching people to love what I loved. <laughs> and uh, so I always thought of myself as a teacher. I, I was really blessed to have a wonderful college education and be able to get a, a fellowship, uh, which I chose to go to Ohio State University because my husband-to-be, my fiance, was going to Ohio State Law School. So I was on that track. That's what I intended. And uh, But God had other plans. While I was going to college in uh, California, 
I, um, I observed what happened when uh, Governor Ronald Reagan actually signed the bill liberalizing the abortion laws in California, one of the first states to liberalize its abortion laws. And I was in college there. I saw the billboards going up, you know, abortion, uh, need pregnant question mark, need help, abortion numbers. And I was really, really shocked. And in our college ethics class, the professor said to our class, mark my words, in five years, abortion will be legal all over the United States. And that was in 1968 that he said that. And Boy, he called it right on the money, didn't he? I was so shocked. And the whole class, there was a, like a gasp. How could this happen? You know, we were raised in an era where you were, everyone was happy when, when somebody's mother was pregnant again. And we, we believed that every child was a blessing. Uh, and so it was such a shock. And yet that was the time of the whole sexual revolution. Uh, they were burning bras at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, just right close to the college where I went. Uh, they were burning down buildings in, in, uh, at Berkeley in the Vietnam protests. Everything seems so different uh, there in California. I was from Ohio. I, I guess I, I wasn't really uh, thinking that when I got back to Ohio, back into graduate school, got married, uh, was on the path that I had thought I was supposed to be on, um, all of a sudden in the car, uh, driving up to meet with my dissertation advisor, I heard the Supreme Court decision announced January 22nd. Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. And I was so shocked and I immediately thought of the prophecy of our ethics professor. And I realized that everything that was happening there in California What's happening everywhere <laughs> here in our country? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people who are younger who might be listening um, never lived in the world that you're describing. Exactly. Uh, and I, I grew up as a child in that world as well. Yes. And there was uh, a th the idea of um, abortion just as being a part, a normal part of reproductive health care was never uh, part of the discussion. And then there was a, a ongoing political battle where uh, there were attempts in states, California and others, to legalize abortion, and some were legalizing and some were refusing to. For example, right. I think it was Michigan that had yes. uh, just a few weeks or months before Roe had a, a um, referendum where the people of Michigan said, no, we don't want to legalize it. Absolutely. And then Roe basically took that issue out of the democratic sphere sphere and, and put it uh, – into the constitution. And you said this was shocking, so shocking to you that you decided to change your whole life course? Well, um, I didn't realize how much it would change my life course. I had heard of Right to Life. I knew there was such a group as Right to Life. I don't know exactly how, although I think my sister who was a nurse in, um, in Cleveland had already connected somehow and had sent me some information. So I looked in the phone book and uh, first of all, I said to my husband, who was a new lawyer at that point, you know, I said, go to the law library, see if this could be true. I can't believe they have the story right. And uh, while I was doing that, of course, also looked in the phone book, Right to Life was there. <laughs> and I called them and said, uh, you know, my husband and I want to get involved. What can we do? So that was the beginning. And we didn't realize at that point, and for really for about 20, the first 20 years of our involvement, 
Um, I continued to be, I became a college English professor. I loved what I was doing. This was, you might say, our our, our vocation, but an avocation. Right. (laughs) And uh, we housed pregnant girls in our home. We helped to start a pregnancy center, the first one here in Columbus, Ohio, that opened its doors on January 22nd, 1981. And we were very, very involved. Uh, my husband was attorney, uh, an attorney. He, he handled a lot of adoptions. We helped girls with all kinds of options uh, that they were choosing, life-affirming options. And then, uh, actually, since you followed the, the story of abortion so closely, uh, you know that in 1992, um, uh, when we thought perhaps uh, Roe would be overturned, but it wasn't, um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey was handed down, and uh, that changed the landscape a little bit uh, of, of how the laws on abortion were interpreted around the United States, but it was not overturned. And as I look back, I realized that that, along with uh, the election of, of Clinton, uh, who, who was very pro-abortion, following up on uh, a pro-life president, uh, President Reagan, most of us in the movement really thought that Roe might never be overturned. And I personally felt that within the pregnancy help movement, we might be the only real uh, way that we could limit abortions and save lives and spread the, the truth of the dignity of the human person. By, uh, by limit abortions, you're not talking uh, coercion, but you're no. talking about helping women so that they choose not to have an abortion. Exactly. Uh, limiting the demand for abortion. That's how we sometimes talk about our work. Uh, others have worked on limiting the supply of abortions. We have worked on limiting the demand for abortions. And so we really thought, uh, I, I did think this, that um, we might never be able to actually overturn the, the law, uh, but we could still continue and we needed to in a much more effective way, much more strategically, we needed to grow and develop the pregnancy help movement. Uh, and so the idea is to save lives, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Save lives, but also along with saving lives, you know, our founders uh, always talked about uh, the, the mother. They focused on the mother as well as the child, the mother and the family as well as the child. So we realize we're not just saving lives, we're changing lives, we're changing perspectives on the dignity of the human person. You know, once a mother has thought about aborting her child and she doesn't, and we know now some very dramatic cases in abortion pill reversal, mothers will say, how could I have ever thought of abortion? And they would never consider that with another child. It changes the whole dynamic uh, of the relationships within the family. So we knew that our work was not just saving babies. It was, it was life-changing for the women themselves and for their families. So we knew that by, by, as you know, 20 years after Roe v. Wade, the culture itself was dramatically changing because of the availability of abortion. So we had a cultural role and at not just saving babies. <laughs> you know, as my as my commitment went on, I began to realize very soon after my husband and I got involved in 1973, this is not just about saving babies. <laughs> in it's fact, about helping women and helping families, you're saying. Absolutely. And I also thought, you know, when I first heard that decision announced, how could this be happening in my country? It's also a matter in my in my mind and in my heart 
of of saving our countries, that the values that we had been founded on, you know, the Judeo-Christian culture that had made our country uh, exceptional. And so to me, it's it's a whole package. And, uh, and I believed in 1992 that Heartbeat really needed to, you might say, get our act together and on a much bigger scale and much more strategically explain, expand the pregnancy help movement. That's when I decided to uh, resign from my teaching job. And by that time, our children were also at an age that I realized um, God was saying, you need to devote yourself much more intentionally and full time uh, in the in the pro-life movement. That's when I became president of Heartbeat International. That's very inter- interesting because, you know, we also, not only do we hear, which is a canard, it's a falsehood that pro-lifers only care about children before they're born and not after, and, they, and that pro-lifers don't care about pregnant women or women who've given birth, which of course, we'll, as we'll get into, you do. Yes. But also that the leadership of the pro-life movement is just a bunch of men telling women what to do with their bodies. But my experience uh, as somebody who's spoken quite often to pro-life people, allied with them, for example, against assisted suicide and so forth, is that most of the leadership of the pro-life movement is female. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And um, yeah, I don't know whether it was first women who were most touched by this. I I don't know, but you know, it's that men are stepping up really in leadership of our movement as well, and um, and I I think that the men who are often are saying, you know what, uh, if fathers had taken their responsibility early on, we wouldn't be where we are. So men are coming into leadership and uh, and really again trying to challenge other men step up, and in in truth, Wesley, when it comes to why women choose abortions. Uh, there have been a lot of studies done on that. And the most important factor is the, it, when they become pregnant unexpectedly, the response of the father of the child. Oh, really? Yes. And uh, women, so many women feel abandoned, even when a man will say something like, well, it's your choice. Yeah, well, that's kind of telling the woman what he would like her to do. That's the way she interprets it. Not yeah. all men actually believe that. I've, I've counseled with many of them who, who were shocked that that's the way their words were understood because they thought this is what she wanted to hear. <laughs> and, and they were trying to be supportive. Yeah. Tell us um, a little bit more about Heartbeat International. You, it was in existence uh, before you became president, but you yeah. became president in 93, I believe. Yes, and that's when we changed our name to Heartbeat International. Our original name was Alternatives to Abortion International, AAI it was referred to. And we were founded in 1971, actually in Chicago early uh, that year, as a response to uh, the growth of uh, uh, the growth of pregnancy help, it was happening all over the country after states began to try to change their laws and and uh, and make abortion more available. Um, so, far-sighted people realized when abortion becomes legal in our state, women are going to be pressured into having abortions perhaps by the father of the child, maybe it's their parents, maybe it's their circumstances. Uh, They need a safety net. They need someone to talk to. They need help and support. So really, uh, not even knowing that others existed doing the same thing, it's an amazing thing. I I attribute it to the Holy Spirit. 
people were, were stepping forward and starting hotlines, um, starting um, uh, trying in every way to make efforts to reach pregnant girls. Some of the early outreaches for pregnancy help came from physicians' offices, from Catholic physicians specifically, who were very pro-life. And uh, they were actually, physicians were the place that women had to go in that time uh, to get a pregnancy test. They had to be ordered by a physician, sent to a laboratory. So women who were considering abortion were coming to physician's offices and uh, needing a pregnancy test. Usually there was a two to three day turnaround before that test was developed and the woman had to come back for her results. So actually some of the early pregnancy centers and our founder of, of Heartbeat International was one of those pro-life physicians. Um, and uh, out of his office, his nurses then started counseling with the women when they came back for their pregnancy test results. They were operating kind of little mini pregnancy centers out of mm. these medical practices. Um, so uh, actually what happened, eventually they, they heard about each other. And uh, one, one of the bishops from the US, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops who traveled around a lot observed that this was happening. Uh, particularly in the states where abortion had become legal. And he called all these people together that he had met, knew of, brought them together, and wanted them to get to know each other. And they decided that they wanted to form uh, an organization to uh, within which they could network, they could learn from each other, uh, they could collaborate uh, and find best practices. And that was the beginning of AAI, Alternative to, to Abortion International. And then uh, you you became president of Heartbeat. You've spoken a lot um, in our interview about um, the Holy Spirit and God and so forth. Is Heartbeat a religious organization? We are a Christian organization. We call ourselves a Christ-centered organization. Uh, AAI was founded as a humanitarian organization. And uh, our founder, actually one of our founders, I mentioned Dr. John Hillebrand, the OBGYN from Toledo, Ohio. Another one of our founders was Lori Meyer, who was a survivor of Nazi Germany. She had been a young teenager uh, during the Nazi regime. And uh, when she escaped at the very end of the war, um, she uh, ended up getting out of a Germany that was collapsing. Uh, with Soviets coming in and Czechs coming in on one side, she she uh, pretended to be a Red Cross nurse and jumped on the back of a Red Cross bus. That's how she made <laughs> it out uh, of Germany. But she became a court reporter um, also for the trials of some of the Nazi criminals. And she was very influenced by the humanitarian movement of that point, of that time. And she thought of, of Heartbeat as a humanitarian organization. Um, when, as we developed over the first 20 years, um, what became clear to those of us who were involved was that particularly women who had had abortions, and you've, you've talked about uh, uh, what other kinds of services we provide in pregnancy centers. We, we provide a range. Uh, but one of the most universal services that's offer, offered in pregnancy centers, in addition to a pregnancy test and an ultrasound in the medical lens, is uh, after abortion support. So we had so many women that we were helping uh, to recover from abortion. Many of them were our volunteers. And let, it, let me let me interrupt for just a second. After abortion support, you mean that a woman has had an abortion, is having a crisis because of it, and then you step in, they come to you and you actually help 
them recover from the trauma? Yes. Uh, yes, that's true. The very first support programs for women who have had abortions were developed out of pregnancy centers. That's interesting. And, uh, in fact, I think the first one came out of the center that my husband and I opened in Columbus, Ohio in 1984. We developed a program called PAST, Post-Abortion Support Team. And we had had so many women coming in to want to volunteer and help other women in the pregnancy center because they themselves had had abortions. Uh, and they wanted to help other women choose something else. But there really were no programs at that time to help them resolve the feelings they had about their abortions. And, um, you know, the, they ranged from depression to anxiety to even suicidal thoughts, um, uh, sometimes general inertia. You know, the women just couldn't re-engage in the activities that they had been involved in initially. So we began to observe that and got these women together uh, and tried to help them work through their their uh, what they were suffering, what they were feeling. And in the beginning, interestingly, Wesley, the professional psychiatrists and psychologists uh, didn't really want to work with us and in, in, in working with these women because they at that point, the, th the thinking was, you know, maybe we just ought to leave all this under the surface. Uh, if, if it all comes up, would we be uh, opening up these women to more severe uh, anxiety or depression or even suicide? And so we, we finally found a counselor who was willing to work with us at our pregnancy center and said, let me help you see some red flags. And, and when, if you observe these red flags in your support group, uh, then give me a call. <laughs> but as it's turned out, Wesley, through the years, uh, it, it's there are many, many, many programs now and many operating out of pregnancy help centers with primarily women who have had abortions helping other women who have had abortions. Uh, and now the professionals in the field, counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists, recognize the value of helping women bring up these feelings and and bring up their experience and work with each other and with professionals in helping to recover. So because we knew uh, that there were so many issues and problems uh, with this, we felt called, you know, to step forward. And um, so, so that was the beginning, really, of my understanding and realization that our mission was greater than a humanitarian one in the sense that we had so many women um, who needed to know that they were forgiven. Uh, they were Christians or had been Christians or uh, of, of many different denominations, but felt that God would never forgive them. This was somehow the unforgivable sin. So we, we really, that's when I realized and I eventually made it explicit uh, within heartbeat and our, our value, our, our core values, that we are a Christ-centered organization. And uh, we do help women um, to come to that, particularly that kind of uh, forgiveness and healing, connect them with uh, resources, churches, and other programs that can help them. And then, But you'll help women if they're not religious and if they don't want to become Christian, correct? Absolutely, yes. And that's part of our affiliation principles. Uh, that that we serve women without any regard to uh, religion, race, creed, nationality, so forth. And of if course, if there's a woman who's pregnant who wants help and needs help, you're there. Absolutely right. And so let's get real. Lead. 
in terms Real of- Real quickly into some of the services you provide, uh, obviously counseling, you talked about mm-hmm. some psychological help, uh, referrals, or, you, or it's provided at the centers? Absolutely. Community referrals, where we, we do phenomenal amount of networking with, there are lots of resources in almost every community uh, for help. Uh, but it's very difficult to find them to to uh, cut through, and you know anymore you can't pick up the phone and talk to a person. Yes, <laughs> we're in a system, and women are are very vulnerable, and uh, they need a person. Uh, in fact, one of our favorite sayings is "heartbeat at heartbeat" is the best alternative to abortion is another person. So we want to be with her as an advocate, as a companion you know, partnering with her along the way to get her all the resources she needs. But and if she, if resources she needs, if she's having trouble in terms of the medical bills or if she's having trouble in terms of, uh, let's say, buying baby clothes and so forth. Housing, uh, just just even applying through, uh, let's say she's she's eligible for, for Medicaid funding for her pregnancy and, and for her baby. Just getting through the system of application can be daunting for some people. Uh, so, but the, the, the core services that a pregnancy center will be providing, a pregnancy test, uh, consultation, um, and many, many centers now, I believe it's 78% of heartbeat affiliates are, provide medical services also, uh, particularly ultrasound. And uh, that is something that has, uh, has come into our movement actually in the 90s. The ability to, beginning in the 80s, actually, the late 80s, but really expanding in the 90s and forward. So that we're not just giving a pregnancy test, which was an indication of pregnancy, but an ultrasound can be a diagnosis of pregnancy. Uh, with an ultrasound, uh, which is operated under the, under the uh, supervision of a medical director, the centers that offer ultrasounds have medical directors and they have nurse ultrasonographers who do this uh, work, they can confirm a viable uterine pregnancy. And this is a key piece of information that women need uh, because they could have missed a period, they could even have symptoms of pregnancy, but not be pregnant. And uh, there's been evidence that women were actually put through abortions with a lot of trauma to themselves, and they weren't even pregnant. (laughs) Oh my. Um, So the ultrasound also can help determine it's amazing uh, the, the numbers of ectopic pregnancies that we have even been able to diagnose. Women could go in for an abortion. Um, and uh, in the days, particularly when abortion was uh, primarily surgical, uh, they could go through a surgical abortion. But if the baby was in the fallopian tube, which is the definition of ectopic pregnancy, or someplace outside of the uterus, um, she could still be pregnant after getting an abortion. And so uh, that can be a life-saving problem, having an ectopic pregnancy. So we've been able to diagnose many ectopic pregnancies, getting people to uh, care. So, so the medical services have really expanded what we've been able to provide, as well as all kinds of support afterwards, which we can talk about a little more too, Wesley. Right. Would, would I be correct in saying, obviously, the centers can't do the surgeries if they're necessary and that kind of thing, that you have a... Uh, um, a, a list of uh, medical professionals who you can refer these women to? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, if it's an ectopic pregnancy, we probably would be referring them immediately to an emergency room. Sure. Of course. Um, but those, all the protocols uh, for all of our medical services 
are developed by the particular medical director at that uh, pregnancy health medical clinic. So yeah, the crisis intervention is the pregnancy test, the ultrasound, uh, the immediate consultation for options. Uh, and then after uh, the woman decides what her choice is going to be, um, for a life-affirming choice, we will give her all kinds of help and support. And even if she chooses an abortion, many I, I will come back to us. Even if she chooses an abortion, they can come back to you? Many do. Many do. Yes, we, allow, we tell them that we provide post-abortion support. And many do come back, particularly now, Wesley, with the abortion pill. Uh, as as now the primary type of abortion that's being performed in the United States. Uh, because women, it used to be, in our experience with surgical abortion, it might be 10 years or more before a woman was really ready to come for support after her abortion. Uh, there was enough pushing those feelings down and so forth that, that it didn't really emerge often for 10 years or more. Now, with the abortion pill, abortion, which women experience in their own homes, uh, generally in their own bathrooms, and they're quite painful, uh, there's, they're, they're, it's, it's a very traumatic experience to go through. I, I understand from our pregnancy centers that many women are calling almost immediately. And if they've been to the pregnancy center first, and if they chose abortion, they need help. They need help immediately. And you're not going to uh, coerce them or, um, uh, in fact, I was looking at the Planned Parenthood uh, uh, website and they accused the centers of potentially harassing women who get abortions. Uh, and what you're telling me is that's just baloney. Just the opposite, absolutely the opposite of what we do. In fact, our, our main training and a book that I've written, Wesley, is called The Love Approach. That's the approach that we take. Uh, it's, it's based on 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, um, love doesn't judge, uh, love doesn't fail, all right? <laughs> but really, it also, now we use it as an acronym, L-O-V-E, to, to, kind of, uh, to kind of illustrate how we operate in our relationships with these women. The L step is listen, listen and learn. The very first thing we have to do, we put her first, we listen to her story, we give her a safe place to talk about her feelings and her thoughts and her fears and her desires and her wants and her needs. And, and we really develop that relationship with her. So the basis of our care is relationship and listening to that woman and where she is. That's the very first thing we do before we really talk about options. That's the second step in the love approach. O is options. Once the relationship has been developed, together we can pursue her options. You know, what are the options she's thinking of? All right, what, why is she thinking that? Um, how, how are those options going to affect her? How are they going to affect her baby? All right, has she thought of other options? Um, so the options discussion is not the first thing we come out with. <laughs> what are you going to do? And here's, uh, you know, no. The first thing that, that we do is sit down, you know, face to face, heart to heart, and really try to allow her to express herself and her needs. So then there, there's the option. And then there's the V-step in the L-O-V-E, 
which is introduced to her a new vision and value, uh, the value that she is. You know, I, I love it, Wesley, that you are so uh, adamant about the dignity of the human person and, uh, and, and the name of your program even humanize. So many of these women that come to us have no concept of themselves as worthy, as, as, uh, as, um, as capable. You know, um, they, they feel like they've, they've been a failure. Even being pregnant for many of them is a failure. How could I let this happen? How did I do this? Um, and I could, I could never finish school and, and have my baby. I could never um, take care of my other child and have this child. So they, they really have very little confidence, of very little sense of their own worth. And mm -hmm. so part of, part of our goal in, in, in developing the relationship is to help them understand how, how valuable they are. And, um, and that um, if a woman might say something like, I've had an abortion and, and you know, I could never be forgiven for that, we can help her realize a different vision. That's not really so. You can be forgiven. You can start again. Um, so that's the V step. And then the E step is extend and empower by helping her understand all of the different supports that are available. She doesn't have to do this alone. <laughs> we can be there to partner with her. We can also try to help her reconcile and connect with her family again, perhaps with the father of the child, to help rebuild those relationships that should be there uh, to help her make a positive choice and not feel alone. That's why we get back to, I think you mentioned early on, our goal that every woman have the help and support she needs to have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. So that's how we try to do it. That's a, that's a lot of effort of, and it's very hands-on. Do you charge for these services? No, <laughs> no, we do not. Uh, it's, and that's an interesting thing about our movement. About 80% of the people who work in our pregnancy centers are volunteers. Uh, and they're just passionate about uh, expressing their love and care and concern and helping women make positive choices for themselves and for their babies. Um, we do have a few paid staff people, often administrative staff, uh, executive directors, uh, nurse ultrasonographers, um, but 10,000 in our network, there are 10,000 um, medical personnel, and even some of them are volunteers as well. And and how many approximately volunteer hours do you think are put in a year? Do you have any way of knowing that? Gosh, I really don't. That's a good thing. We could we should try to figure it out. <laughs> because it seems to me that would be an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just in terms, just heartbeat affiliates. Now, of all the pregnancy help locations in the United States, about two two thirds of them are part of our heartwork, heartbeat network, and we know we can document about thirty five thousand volunteers at any one point in time, uh, are working in heartbeat affiliates. So you so add another, you, another, you know, third of that, you'd have, you know, 40. So you're talking about 60,000 volunteers at any given time in all of the centers, you might say? Close to that. Roughly? Yes, yes, close to that, yeah. They're wonderful people, and some of them have been volunteering for decades. Some of them are, are new. We've got volunteers of all different ages. Uh, Do you and, train the volunteers? 
I started out training the volunteers in our pregnancy center in here in Columbus, and that Heartbeat does train volunteers, yes. And uh, we, we train them one-on-one. We can come in and do it on site, but we have a really extensive online training program now that we call our academy. We've got over 9,000 students at any one point in time taking courses on our academy. Some of it is is on uh, working with women, using the love approach. Uh, we have other courses on all kinds of uh, areas that pregnancy centers need uh, training. Could be administrative, um, management, uh, fundraising, outreach, advertising, branding, uh, you name it. <laughs> the full range of operations uh, we try to help centers. Uh, so you're not that. just going to have a, a woman who's a, in a, a very difficult circumstance who comes to see you, seeing somebody who is just going to be um, reacting off the top of her head, correct? Absolutely. That that would not be the goal for sure. <laughs> yeah, we understand that they're very vulnerable. They're in a very delicate situation. And um, we need to, to, to truly be well-trained and make sure our hearts are in the right places. That's for sure. <laughs> Is there any estimate of the number of women uh, who were thinking seriously or planning on abortion who changed their minds because they received this kind of support? Well, that's very difficult to estimate, but we do know that 80% of all the women who uh, have an ultrasound in a pregnancy center who are considering abortion choose life. Um, So that's really important. Uh, and many pregnancy centers are doing thousands of ultras- ultrasounds a year. Um, so Heartbeat does estimate that among our affiliates, we're saving about 3,000 babies a week. It's a very, week? A week. A week. Among our affiliates, right? Right. 2,000 sites in the United States. Yes. Um, that, that, that you know, there's, a, there's an old Jewish saying that if you <laughs> saved a life, you saved the world. Mm-hmm. If you're saving 3,000 lives a week... Uh, that's a remarkable uh, achievement, if you want my opinion. Yes, I wish I wish we could document it with all the pictures of the live babies. <laughs> <laughs> we see so many of them, you know. But we're extrapolating that from the the data that we can get. We're pretty honest about uh, about our data, and very honest, I should say, about our data. Um, but uh, as you can imagine, it's having a, such a volunteer based movement that's so diverse. You know, um, and uh, it's difficult to actually say the exact number. Uh, Now, um, it's it's amazing, though. And then there are those that, you know, sometimes we don't we don't think have been saved, you know, that will sometimes come back. You think a woman has chosen an abortion and she actually comes back with her baby. Uh, I had a wonderful never forget a case where a woman that we all thought had chosen abortion came back. came back a year later, brought her baby and wanted to donate all of her baby items from the first year to another woman <laughs> who might. Need oh, that's great. So sure. women helping women who are now in that circumstance. Absolutely. Um, I, I, on the Planned Parenthood site, um, the accusation was made that you hide that you are a pro-life group. And so people are not aware of that. Is that a, is that a fact? No, that is not a fact. And in fact, we have a whole commitment of care and competence that centers we train on, centers sign on to. Uh, we, we, are, we are honest about our services, about our advertising. Interestingly, the false accusations are just rampant out there, Wesley. 
we had a letter just recently uh, from Elizabeth Warren and six other centers or six other senators, I should say, who all are uh, heavily funded by Planned Parenthood. And uh, what they're accusing us of now, um, of course, Elizabeth Warner is on record as saying that we torture women who come Warren. into pregnancies. I'm sorry, Elizabeth yes. Warren, we torture women who come into pregnancy centers. Uh, she's on record as saying that. Wasn't uh, too soon after that, that uh, there have, have been massive attacks, physical attacks on pregnancy centers. Um, yeah, I want to get into that a little bit later. Right. But uh, Lisa, but, I just wanted to show a quote yeah. in one of the letters sure. from, uh, from Elizabeth Warren says, uh, the CPC industry is now functioning as surveillance infrastructure because we collect data, she says, uh, as now functioning as surveillance infrastructure for the anti-abortion movement, amassing data that could be used in pregnancy and abortion-related prosecutions post-Roe. In other words, somehow the data we're collecting on women uh, can be used to prosecute them for uh, abortion uh, in states, perhaps, where abortion is illegal. The accusations are just bizarre. Uh, and, and there's no state that would criminalize the woman that I'm aware of. No, absolutely not. <laughs> so, yes, the false accusations, the lies that have been promulgated, uh, I think we're in an, an era that I really haven't seen since the very beginning of the movement when people were saying that uh, that they were talking about, for instance, the contents of the uterus. You know, this is not a human being. This is the contents of the uterus. With, with ultrasound, nobody can deny anymore, you know, that human life begins at conception. But now we have these lies that uh, if, um, if abortion is prohibited, women will die from ectopic pregnancies or, or die uh, after couldn't be treated for miscarriages. These are just blatant lies. But unfortunately, it, it, people are vulnerable to them. It, it is a remarkable um, thing that I've noticed, too, since the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe. We'll get into that in just a second. You would not refer for an abortion, though. That would be That's an accurate correct. statement. That is correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. and But you don't pretend that you would, right? Not at all. No. No. Now, you know, when I was young, there was, there was things called homes for unwed mothers, uh -huh. you know, where, where women could actually go and reside uh, during their pregnancy. Are those uh, relics of the past or is there anything kind of equivalent to that today? Well, the ones that we remember, <laughs> Wesley, are relics of the past. They were large, institutionalized, usually run by a professional social service agency. Probably 85 or 90% of the women in those homes uh, made adoption plans for their babies. Um, that were very confidential at that point. Um, so those homes do not exist. And in fact, even before Roe, most of them were gone uh, because the stigma against single parenthood was beginning to uh, be changed here right. in the United States. And um, now, however, our movement has not only developed, it's amazing the network that has been developed of pregnancy centers. Uh, as I mentioned, there were hardly any <laughs> back before Roe v. Wade. Um, but not only have we developed a phenomenal network of pregnancy help centers, but we've also developed a great network of small maternity homes. Uh, these are, again, often staffed in part by volunteers. Um, they are usually not more than six to 10 or 15 women 
living in these homes. Um, often they are for uh, homeless women, uh, women who've been trafficked. Uh, the issues and problems that women now are bringing into housing uh, are, are, are some that really can't be handled well with housing in private homes. My husband and I housed 12 girls through the years, uh, starting back in, in the 70s. But the issues and problems that women are experiencing now, the woundedness and the trauma, means that they need special kinds of, of residential care. And so our movement has also developed a wonderful network of about 300 homes that are just wonderful resources for women. Women can often stay two years, uh, sometimes three years, um, and, and they need that kind of support. Really? I mean, that's way beyond obviously giving birth. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. that, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, is human trafficking, trafficking of women, uh, 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 the problem that you just kind of hinted at in terms of, of pregnancies and abortion and so forth? Yes, absolutely. We see women who are trafficked in our pregnancy centers where Heartbeat tries to help uh, pregnancy centers recognize when they have a person who's been uh, being trafficked. Uh, often she may come in with an older man. Um, so, so we are trying to help our centers intervene in situations like this. And uh, sometimes a, a woman that we're helping throughout her pregnancy, uh, we find that she has had a, the kind of past where she's been abused, she's been trafficked. Uh, she just needs a, a massive amount of love and support, but also some professional care to help her recover from that. And uh, can you get her? Can do you have um, resources for women who are trafficked uh, to get protection and law enforcement involved? We yes, in our trainings we provide policies, we provide uh, best practices again in trying to help centers navigate that very difficult situation. Yeah, I'm planning on in the future doing a a, uh, a program on human trafficking because I think it's a really urgent issue that get, doesn't get nearly enough attention in terms of pornography and women used uh, in, in those films, prostitution, mm -hmm. and so forth. So that's that's very interesting that you actually may be an, uh, a uh, option where a trafficked woman can actually get freedom because she came to your center. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, Wesley, it's an example of how, while human nature, of course, remains the same, <laughs> and yes. I think that's... that's uh, the beauty, uh, one of the beauties of, of human nature, but the, the issues that we now have to deal with in a pregnancy center uh, because of the changes in our culture, I mean, the, the issues are very different than the ones we dealt with back in the early 70s and, uh, and much more complex. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that I love about your program, uh, I, the, the term humanize, uh, it, it reminds me of some great lessons I learned uh, through some of the experts in abortion, abortion uh, effects on women, that one psychiatrist in particular, his name is Philip Ney, he teaches uh, that a woman could never have an abortion if she herself had not been dehumanized, either through mm. abuse or neglect in her past. She could not dehumanize her baby unless she herself had been dehumanized. And so our, our, our challenge is to help rehumanize 
and um, rehumanize, help the women rehumanize and help them and then help them rehumanize their babies after abortion. One of the ways that they heal is by recognizing that, that, that their child that they aborted really indeed was a child. And uh, we help them understand that, believe that, um, perhaps memorialize their child in some way. Naming the child is very important, but rehumanizing the child helps rehumanize them as well. But the, that challenge that we have of so many people having been now through so much trauma as our culture has, I, I would say, deteriorated in the last 50 years, uh, we're seeing all that in pregnancy centers. That that's interesting. There's the, it, I noticed in going through your website, which I of course perused, uh, that you help with adoptions as well. Uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Well, infant adoption is not nearly as prominent uh, a choice as it was uh, decades ago. My husband and I have two infants who were um, that we were able to adopt. Uh, their birth mothers made adoption plans for them rather than have abortions. And, um, but the number of infant adoptions is, is pretty rare now, actually. Only we think about one to 2% of pregnancies by unmarried women uh, result in an adoption plan. Uh, but when women are interested in adoption and are, are willing to think through an adoption plan, now there are many, many different options that they can, that they can uh, pursue to make a plan that really is something that they feel peaceful with. We call it openness in adoption. Sometimes they still want a very confidential adoption where they don't know much about the parents of the child or they have a profile perhaps, but they haven't met the parents. They don't have names. Uh, the parents maybe have a profile, but they don't have the name of the birth mother. Sometimes that's what the birth mother wants, a real confidential adoption. But now our laws have changed so that she can have degrees of openness in adoption. Uh, she could perhaps agree with the adoptive family that they could exchange letters through the years or pictures through the years. Or uh, maybe she meets them. Um, some friends of ours just recently uh, had an adoption with uh, a homeless mother who may, and she was actually drug addicted, but she made an adoption plan for this child. And they actually, uh, both the adoptive parents were with her in the, uh, in the hospital when she birthed that baby. And uh, she, she gave her baby to them to hold and to, to bond with. It, it was a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, but that's the kind of openness that is available now if women are interested in adoption. It's such an unselfish choice that it demands a, a real level of maturity on the part of the mother, that she knows that even though she would love to keep her baby, uh, she and she's already bonded to a certain extent as the baby's been in the womb, but she decides she wants what's best for her baby and she can't provide it. So it's a truly unselfish decision. And, and um, you know, we would, I would, as an adoptive mother, <laughs> Uh, love more people to understand the beauty of that decision and and how we call about we t talk about a triad the birth mother you know the adoptive family and the child and it can be a benefit to every uh, member of that triad but it is not a choice that that uh, that is best for everyone so but we want to provide it as an as an option for sure 
We're beginning to run out of time, and I want to get into some of the pushback that you alluded to earlier in the interview. Um, some states, such as California, have sought to little actively impede the work of these uh, pregnancy centers. Um, for example, they tried to force them to refer for an abortion, and that got uh, turned down in the courts. Yes. Um, but a lot of these help centers really are under uh, stress from state authorities, aren't they? Absolutely, yes. And, you know, that you're referring to the case that went up to the Supreme Court, Nifla versus Becerra, which did confirm that pregnancy centers, it's, it's our freedom of religion, it's our freedom of speech, uh, that we're exercising in the pregnancy centers and we are not required. That was the most restrictive law that any state had tried to impose on, on pregnancy centers. California wanted them to advertise the phone number, you know, of the California Medi-Cal where women could get free abortions. So um, it's been established by the Supreme Court that we do not have to refer for abortion. But the the that has not stopped those who, you know, the attack on pregnancy centers, Wesley, is, is an example in my mind of, again, what a wounded society we have, that people would be so angry about other people providing help and support for pregnant women because somehow they need to defend abortion as a right. And, and I can't believe that, that that comes from anything other than their own woundedness uh, and what abortion has done to them. And you're, You know, you're a very kind person to say that because <laughs> you're not reacting to the anger directed at you with anger. Hmm. Well, I think that's part of our movement, <laughs> Wesley. Uh, I don't know any pregnancy centers that have been attacked. There have been a hundred and even fire bombings of some centers. I haven't seen any of the centers respond uh, with, with, with anger. Certainly they, they want justice and they're, they're upset that, that the Department of Justice, for instance, although they have said they're investigating, they really haven't done anything. Nothing has been done. Uh, in the last few months since uh, hundred centers have been have been attacked but so this hundred centers is basically since the leaking of what became the Dobbs opinion last year and just to, so I'm I'm straight on this I know there have been fire bombings uh, certainly vandalism threats uh, death threats yes. um, there's a a, a militant militant organization that calls itself I don't know if it's even an organization but a, a, you know a, people who call themselves Jane's Revenge right. um, so do, are people um, in the pri the pregnancy centers uh, are they uh, in fear and are, is that uh, in, um, causing some people to say well I can't do this anymore or, or what is the reaction of the movement in general that's an interesting question. I have not heard of one center that is closed because of this at all. Even the ones that were attacked most viciously. There's one in New York State that was firebombed that uh, finally has, has hired their own investigators to try to figure out uh, who did it because the Department of Justice is doing nothing. But no, I haven't. I, I think, um, you know, you ask, are we a Christian movement? Yes, we are. You know, uh, one of the things we believe is that, um, you know, the devil attacks most when, um, when, we're doing, when we're doing what is right and good. And, uh, you know, the attacks are an indication that we are doing what is right and good. 
and um, and it's been noticed. <laughs> and uh, and so it, in many ways, uh, reinforces our passion for the mission. Um, we are not going to give up, and we're not going to give in, and we're going to continue to uh, pray for protection and do what we're called to do. Now, centers are are uh, wise as well. It's cost a lot of funds for centers to be adding security systems and and guards and so forth, which they've done. You know, I, I think we've gone from harassment, as we mentioned with, for instance, uh, Senator Warren, to these kinds of physical attacks. Uh, but it's all part of an effort just to distract us from our mission. And we're not going to be distracted. <laughs> we're called and uh, and we believe, we trust, and uh, we're praying for for um, protection. And we believe that um, we believe that we're we we cannot back down. <laughs> that it's interesting that the uh, reaction in Dobbs has opened up a whole new uh, era, if you will. The the first uh, forty nine years or so, the pro life movement. Um, primarily wanted to overturn Roe. And then, of course, the pregnancy centers uh, were offering an alternative, uh, the safe, legal, and rare to try to make it rare <laughs> part. Absolutely, uh, yes. Yeah. And and now with Dobbs and the overturning, you, you see a real division in the state. Some states have uh, put um, uh, almost outlawed all abortion. Some have restricted it, say, to 15 weeks, while other states have basically uh, said there are to, to be no limits of any kind on abortion. Uh, and uh, I, I think of, of the pregnancy centers kind of caught in the middle of this, this kind of uh, struggle in terms of the culture and, and in terms of law. Has the overturning of Roe impacted uh, the pregnancy center movement at all? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. <laughs> the centers that I know are doing the same jobs that they have been doing. You know, it has not changed what we're doing. Um, however, you know, we're being very um, observant of it, how is it changing the people who are coming to us. For mm -hmm. instance, um, in Texas, one of the first states where abortion was restricted uh, extensively, um, you know, from what we understand, and again, uh, more detailed studies need to be done, but from what we understand, um, pregnancy centers for the most part are still seeing the same number or more of, of women who are coming in for help. And some of these women are saying things when they find out that they're too far along to have an abortion, many of them are relieved. Oh, good. You know, because they're, they've been feeling, feeling that pressure that they needed to have an abortion. Someone was putting pressure on them or because of fears or whatever, they were putting the pressure on themselves. And so, so I'm a big believer that, uh, that, that God-given instinct for women to protect their babies is still very, very strong. And when they are allowed to make a choice for life and given the help and support that they need, they do not want to have an abortion. So some people are relieved when they find out that they can't legally have that abortion. Some people are angry, you know, and are surprised. And so we're dealing with a different kind of reaction than we've had in the past. And we need to, again, because our focus is, let's listen to that woman. Let's sit down with her. Let's understand where she's coming from. Let's see how we can help and support her. 
Um, so we sometimes have different client situations than we've had in the past, depending on what the laws are in that state. But overall, our, our mission is the same. Um, our services remain the same. And um, one thing that Heartbeat is trying to do is to help centers in various states, making sure we have good coalitions, making sure that, uh, that we're giving them opportunities to share with each other. So as they navigate these different kinds of clients or different situations that they haven't, that haven't been there in the same numbers before, um, then, then they'll be, have more of an opportunity to understand how they might proceed and be even more successful. All right. So, so you said that you, together. you said that law enforcement, uh, uh, the De Department of Justice, I, and I assume that means the FBI as well, have not been responsive. Have local uh, police officials been better or is the, are they kind of keeping a hands-off attitude as well? As far as I know, they've been keeping more of a hands-off attitude. I haven't heard any instances where centers have been really satisfied uh, with efforts to bring justice in the cases where they've been attacked. And how about the media's response? Have they reported? I know there have been some reports of, of these attacks. Um, do you feel that or do you think that uh, the media has a, a full understanding of the depth of concern that and uh, agitation? And we haven't even talked about the threats, which must be proliferating. Again, as far as I know, the media has hardly covered this. It's hardly been in the press at all except in the, in the Christian media or the conservative media, right? It's not in the mainstream media. It's been ignored. Well, we're, we're out of time, but I do want to ask you, what is the most important lesson you have learned in your decades of work in this field? Mm, goodness, that's, that's a very uh, thought-provoking question. The most important lesson. Um, I think it's humility. Uh, as we, uh, you know things are constantly changing. <laughs> we always have new challenges. Uh, there are always new opportunities. And, um, and I, I think, again, focusing on the, the centrality of, 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 of being Christ-like in our mission and having Christ-centered uh, programs and services and so forth. We know that so many cases that come to us in some, in some ways, you might think they're hopeless. You know, uh, how can I make a difference? How can I really help this woman? How can I help this child or this family? And yet, uh, I would say God shows up, <laughs> provides other people, provides uh, phenomenal um, people stepping forward to help other people. And so that, so that uh, we're surprised, we're really humbled by the phenomenal stories that, that come from our come from our efforts to help. Uh, what we do alone and the, the, the small budgets that we have uh, are achieving phenomenal impact, phenomenal results. Every time you see a life born, uh, a family put together again, uh, and you know that your effort has been relatively small for the miracle that you see in front of you, it's quite humbling. Have you uh, met some of the uh, children who've grown up who might not have existed or still existed, but for your work? Absolutely. And again, it's quite humbling, <laughs> uh, particularly Wesley, now that we're meeting babies in the abortion pill reversal, babies whose mothers took the first pill 
but heard about abortion pill reversal, found us on the internet, uh, went through the reversal protocol and have their babies. And uh, I've met many of those babies and um, heard, their, heard the stories of the mothers and seeing the excitement of the mother when knowing that she was in the process of, of killing her baby. That's the way she looks at it. I took that pill. I was killing my baby. And, and then, you know, I was able to save my baby. It's just so powerful. And so uh, if somebody um, uh, has done that, if they call you, uh, you can get them that uh, medication that can reverse that pill? Absolutely. Abortion and, reversal. And if anybody's listening to this uh, podcast who might be needing your services, what's the best way for them to contact you? Well, our option line. Option line is uh, 1-800-712-HELP, 1-800-712-HELP, or optionline.org. Uh, also, we've got abortionpillreversal.com. And uh, for someone seeking abortion pill reversal, they can Google it, they can find it. Um, someone, again, any kind of pregnancy help, uh, optionline.org, 1-800-712-HELP. 712 because it's available seven days a week, 12 months of the year, <laughs> in English and Spanish. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's bilingual. And uh, and then you will refer them to a local uh, center. Is that how that works? That's correct. We try to get them to the local help that will best fit their needs. And remember what I said, Wesley, the best alternative to abortion is another person. So we want to give them a person in their community who can really step forward, partner with them. Uh, walk with them and help them in every way possible to have a healthy pregnancy, a healthy baby and a healthy family. Well, Peggy, thank you very much for being with us and uh, for the work you do. I think it's very important thank you. and uh, we'll talk to you again. Thank you, Wesley. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.